Good morning. Luke chapter 21. We are in the study of what's called the Olivet Discourse, Jesus on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, speaking about the end of time. A very important and interesting subject, isn't it? can be complicated. Uh, it's pretty straightforward what Jesus says, but there's a lot of information. And so let me bring us up to speed. Jesus is on Wednesday. It's two days before he's going to be crucified. Uh, on that Wednesday, the, the date, if you like to write in your Bible, is April 1st, A.D. 33. He will die on the 3rd on Friday. Uh, he has left, appears to have left Jerusalem or leaving Jerusalem. He's going into Bethany where he stays each night and comes back to Jerusalem to teach. Uh, when they leave, they go up on the Mount of Olives, and over the Mount of Olives is the little town of Bethany where he stays with his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And upon reaching the top of the mountain of the hill, which is really what it is, uh, the disciples look at it and say, Jesus, isn't it beautiful? Isn't the temple beautiful? And Jesus says, it is beautiful in a sense. But he said, there's a day coming when there will not be one stone of this temple left upon another. And he begins to tell them. They, of course, are going, what are you talking about? When? When will this happen? And they ask when, there in verse 7, chapter 21. And Jesus says, he goes through a, a series of, there's many things that are going to happen, guys, but don't be misled. Don't be misled by the things that you might think are signs. It's easy for we as humans to, to see a terrible disaster on the planet, uh, an earthquake, a, a tornado, a, a devastating ecological disaster of some sort, and say that must be a sign of the end. Jesus is specifically telling them, don't let those things mislead you. There will be earthquakes. There will be signs in the sun and moon and heavens. And there will be signs in the, in the ocean. Don't let that mislead you. There's going to be false Christs, people that come around and say, I am the Messiah, follow me. Jesus said, don't believe him. That's not the beginning of the end. He said, these are the beginnings of birth pangs. He says that in Matthew's gospel. At least Matthew quotes him as saying that. Beginning of birth pangs. These are natural for a woman giving birth, but they're just birth pangs. They're not the actual delivery, as it were. And so he tells them not to worry, and he goes through and he tells them all the way up to verse 11, and he tells them in verse 12, but before all these things, and he speaks to them as you, you guys are going to be handed over. There's going to be a terrible destruction. They're going to persecute you. They're going to try to destroy you. You're going to be um, given over to authorities. You're going to stand before kings who accuse you, and stand before governors who accuse you, and he tells them, don't worry about what you'll say. And they didn't have to worry about what they'll say. That doesn't apply to us today. Because it was actually for the disciples. He didn't say, go memorize the book of Romans and give a good theological treatise. You want to know why? Because Romans hadn't been written yet. He didn't say, go, go memorize uh, the gospel of Luke because the gospel of Luke hadn't been memorized. They're living it, or hadn't been written, I should say. Uh, he's essentially saying, guys, don't worry what you'll say. And then, as I made the, in the past, the point I made in the past is that when the disciples were tormented and were persecuted and arrested... It's amazing. Oh, Peter comes up with some of the greatest sermons from the Old Testament, quoting from Joel chapter 2. I mean, if someone put you on the spot and said, tell us, why are you doing these things? Why are you saying these things? Would you say, oh, well, Joel 2. Joel chapter 2. I mean, where does that came to Peter because Jesus said, don't worry about what you'll say. I'll give you those things to say in that time. And Jesus did. We see many of the apostles speaking forth truth that we didn't know they knew up to that point. But he's telling them, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be betrayed, even by people of your own families, or from your own families. But he says there in verse 19, yet not a hair, or 18, not a hair of your head will perish. Which is not to say that no one's going to touch you physically. They all died. They were martyrs. 
The Bible doesn't promise our physical protection. Did you hear me? The Bible does not promise our physical protection. There is nothing in the Bible that said God will always save you from any physical harm. We know that from church history too. Some of the greatest men and women who loved the Lord Jesus died horrific, horrible deaths. What God does promise is that who we are in Christ, who we are beneath this flesh, will absolutely forever eternally be protected when we are in him. And that's what he's telling them. Not a hair of your head. Your soul is mine. Be a good way of putting that. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives, not your physical life. They all died. Not just of old age. They died preaching the gospel because they endured their faith to the end. Would you say that your faith could endure that way? If that kind of persecution came to you, that kind of hatred came to you, just say you don't love Jesus and I'll let you and your wife and children go home. Men, would you say, no, I love the Lord more than my wife and my children, and I will not deny him. You've got to think about that. Ladies, would you say the same thing? Oh, God wants me to be with my children. Why would I die and leave my children without a mama? No other reason except to say, I will not deny my Savior. I will not deny. And so Jesus tells them, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. We show who we are in the midst of persecution. And who we are not. Then he says in verse 20, and I believe, unlike Matthew and Mark, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Her desolation. I think he's talking about the event that would happen about 33 years later. It would begin to happen in A.D. 66 that came to pass in A.D. 70, the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. I think that he's telling the disciples, guys, You're going to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And it was beginning in AD 66 when the Jews revolted. And then Jerusalem was surrounded in AD 70 and it fell to the Romans under Emperor Vespasian and his son, the general Titus. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. And just what Jesus said, that temple that you think is so beautiful, guys, it was destroyed that day. It was leveled and it has never been rebuilt to the present modern day. It was leveled in A.D. 70. And that's what I believe Jesus is saying. And he's saying, then in those days, if you're near the city, run. Don't come into the city, get out of town. If you're pregnant, make sure you're nowhere near that persecution. Because as I told you, over a million Jews were slaughtered in that war. Josephus tells us in his book called War. And almost 100,000 were taken captive as slaves. It's a horrible time. And Josephus depicts it in very... um, I would say grotesque terms, not something you read before dinner. These are days of vengeance, he says in verse 22, and vengeance over the the city of Jerusalem, he's saying to the 12, this is what's going to happen. Jerusalem will reject me. Remember, Jesus has been saying that up to this point. They're going to to, uh, make certain that I'm crucified. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be dead, and I'm going to come back to life, and he did. And then later, Jerusalem was destroyed. The days of vengeance were upon that city. And then he says there in verse 23, Woe to those who are pregnant in those days and those who are nursing babies, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles 
until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, there are some of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, they are known by the, the designation as amillennialists. A millennialist is one who believes in the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ when he returns. To place an A in front of that is to negate the millennialist. So they are amillennialists. They do not believe that there is a 1,000-year reign of Christ upon the earth. They're typically Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists, others. Um, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Insofar as they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not here to, to separate ourselves from them. We do, however, however, have a different opinion. I do, which I preach to you, and I want you to have that too, because I want you to be right. El guapo, right? Which says nothing of intelligence, just of good looks, which both are wrong anyway, when it with regard to me. The times of the Gentiles began essentially in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. And Jerusalem, the holy city, the holy city where the temple of God is, where mediation is made between God and man, has been trampled on by those who are not God's people since that day. And even before, it could date back to 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it, but it was left desolate in those days. And by A.D. 70, it was overrun. And even though our amillennial friends will say, okay, this is all that Jesus is talking about. He's only predicting the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That's the end of it. You dispensationalists like Lance Waldy, we premillennialists like me. He said, you guys are crazy. One guy said, you're so convoluted. I had to go look that up. Convolute. Being's complicated. Well, I'm not complicated. I'm just trying to go through the, the Bible and try to figure out what does the Bible say? Because that's what I am. I'm a Bible teacher. We're a Bible church. I want to believe and teach what the Bible says. So that's why I am. I'm premillennialist because the Bible says it. I believe in election and predestination because the Bible teaches it. There's a lot of things that I wouldn't naturally be unless the Bible told it. Neither would you. And so they will say, no, that's the end of it. Problem is, is that Jesus speaks of his second coming right after this. These things happen. Did Jesus return in AD 70? Anyone? He also says that Jerusalem will be trampled until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. They're still being trampled from that time onward. Luke is the only one that mentions this. So Jerusalem was then in AD 70. Now, the Jews did take back their land or were given their land in 1948. And then they took a lot more of their land, including Jerusalem, in 1967, in that six-day war. They seem to win every time, and they don't even know nor believe nor love Jesus Christ our Lord. But God is working in this nation and will continue to, at least those of us like me, a dispensationalist who is a premillennialist, will preach that. So when I say that, when I say that Jesus is talking about Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, he's talking about A.D. 70, what happened? And as I told you last week, essentially that particular event in A.D. 70 was a near fulfillment of what Jesus is saying. Here's what's going to happen in the near future, guys. But in the far future, the destruction of Jerusalem won't just be Jerusalem. It'll be the entire planet. And so we see when we get to verse 25. So verse 20 begins in A.D. 70. You've got verse 24, people falling by the edge of the sword, Jews being led captive, Jerusalem being overrun by Gentiles. The only summary of the, what we would call the seven-year tribulation in the gospel of Luke in chapter 21 is in verses 25 and 26. 
It's the only thing we have of the tribulation. Here's what Jesus says, verse 25. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men, to include women, fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. Note that, the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And that's all he says. That's the tribulation. Because the next passage says, then they will see the Son of, the man, Son of Man coming in cloud. That's the second coming. So the only thing that, that Luke gives us, quoting from Jesus about that tribulation about the far fulfillment of what happened after A.D. 70 is verses 25 and 26. Let me give you a quick run-through of what, a little bit more about what that looks like. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Revelation and begin in chapter 6. Don't worry, I'm not reading the whole book. Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, the tribulation has begun. The tribulation begins in, verses, in chapter 1, verses one, chapter 6, I should say, verses 1 and 2, with the rider on the white horse, a man going forth to conquer. He's got a bow, but he has no arrows. It's a bloodless war. He is the Antichrist. He brings about, in chapter 6, after that horse, there's four horsemen. Then there's a second seal broken, and a second horseman comes on a red horse, signifying war. And then a black horse, signifying plague and famine, because that's what follows war. And then the fourth horse, the rider on a pale horse, and death follows him. It's what follows the, the, the terrible tribulation time period that I believe begins at the very beginning of this time period. And then in verse 5, um, I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 7, 8 is the, the fourth seal where death comes. Uh, death and Hades is following right behind him. Then you see in the fifth seal in verse 9 is broken, and we see underneath the altar are, is this picture of believers who have died, people who have come to know Jesus in the tribulation time period. They're dead, and they're aware of their death. Isn't that interesting? They know they're dead. They have a consciousness after death, and they're talking, and they're asking, when will you avenge our death? And God tells them, wait a little longer. Tribulation ain't over. When the sixth seal is broken, beginning in verse 12, you see, John says, I saw the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. Keeping in mind what I read from Luke chapter 21, verses 25 and 26. Sun, moon, going black, going dark. You've got um, stars falling from the sky, men hiding in caves, afraid of everything that's happening. Here's, here's where that really kicks in. There's a great earthquake. In fact, in the book of, of Revelation, there are five earthquakes. Remember what Jesus said, when you see earthquakes of all kind, don't make a big deal of it. No big deal. These earthquakes happen within the tribulation time period. Those earthquakes happen long before it. They're happening in our day. What's the difference? The difference is there hasn't been a seven-year peace treaty signed in Israel. Israel hasn't been given permission to rebuild their temple. So all the, the ecological disasters we see today are birth pangs leading up to, honey, we need to go to the doctor. This baby's coming out. That's when the tribulation begins, right, ladies? And some of you, right before it comes out, the great tribulation. That's when these earthquakes happen. There's five of them in the book of Revelation. And these are, these are not an earthquake you heard about in Siberia. They're not an earthquake that we read about happening in San Francisco. These are earthquakes that the entire planet feels. Because it's within a worldwide tribulation context. 
John says he broke sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black. Remember what Luke said? Sign and the sun, moon, stars. Sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. One particular commentator said, the earthquake that this talks about will shoot up so much ash, and it will mix with the blood all over the planet of the dead, not just animals, but people. And the atmosphere will be so dark, so covered with ash, the sun is dark. The sun is not giving its, its, uh, its light. It became black as sackcloth of hair, made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth. What is that? Well, later on, the stars, or, or it's said that, that 100 pound um, hailstones fall. Maybe that's what it's talking about. Maybe it's a meteor. Maybe it's a little of both. But Luke says it in a summary. The apostle John writing in the book of Revelation is telling us here's the real, it's put the the flesh on the skeleton that Jesus gave us. Stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Folks, this did not happen in AD 70. That is not the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains, this is how crazy they are. They're speaking to the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of Satan. The wrath of the lamb. Jesus, the lamb of God. That's where the wrath comes from. He's God. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? When there's an earthquake, are there, are there things that happen beyond, behind an earthquake, like tsunamis? Do tsunamis obliterate entire shorelines, cities? Do they kill people? We've seen some of these things. Some of them are on YouTube. You can watch them. That is just touching the surface of what this is telling us will happen. That far fulfillment so let's go back to Luke. In Luke 21, 25, when he says signs in the sun, moon, and stars, we just read what John says will happen, what that looks like. And on the earth, dismay among nations. Nations? That means it's not just Israel. That's the only one that suffered in A.D. 70 were the Jews living in Jerusalem. This is dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. We take that literally, we go to Revelation, we see this is worldwide coming. This isn't a localized surrounding of of Israel or of Jerusalem, I should say. Verse 26, again, men fainting from fear. Isn't that the people that are hiding in the rocks, calling out to the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb? Fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. Not Jerusalem, not Israel, just them. But the whole world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It's like God taking his world that he made and just shaking it. That's the tribulation. Jesus has told the disciples, here's what they'll do to you. They're going to persecute you. Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies. That happened in A.D. 70. They're going to put people to the sword. They're going to take them captive. And Jerusalem is going to be left to be trampled under feet, underfoot, by the Gentiles. And it was from A.D. 70 to at least 1948.
That continues on, but the end says there'll be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, which we just looked at. That hasn't happened. We await the seven-year tribulation that is depicted here in Luke, granted, only two verses, given a little bit more in Matthew and Mark, but Luke has his own purpose here. Then, and as we read in the book of Revelation, in Revelation you have what's called seven seals. I just read to you the first six. There's four horsemen, they're the first four. You've got a a white horse, a red horse, a black horse, an ashen horse or pale horse. You've got seal number five is the, the, uh, the martyrs who are dying, who come to know Christ. They missed the rapture, but they come to know Christ in the tribulation, and they're killed for being Christian or believers. The sixth seal, you see the earth just shaken, and then the seventh seal is broken. The seventh seal, however, has seven trumpet judgments within the seventh seal. And the seventh trumpet judgment has seven bowl judgments. So the seventh seal contains all seven trumpets and seven bowls. Are you with me? Some of the reason that I speak so fast and give you so much information is so that you will. I hope that it whets your appetite if you haven't been in the habit of reading it and go read it. Some people will say very kindly, one man came to, to church, he visited it, and he said, man, your, your pastor really knows the Bible. I think he told Brian Smith that. And I, why should that surprise anyone? Isn't that my job? I mean, shouldn't, no one should be impressed with that. that. He knows the Bible. That's my job. Your surgeon, man, my heart surgeon really knows the heart. That surprised me. <laughs> He's a cardiologist. She's a cardiologist. Man, she really knows how to deliver babies. Well, she's an OBGYN. That's what they study. A pastor knows the Bible. He's supposed to. And preach the Bible. And so... What you have here is is a knowledge of what's coming in the book of Revelation, rattling off things one by one and bringing it back to what it says here and what you and I are to do with it. And so after those things happen, after the, the seventh seal is broken and the seven trumpets play out, it just gets worse and worse. That's why Matthew calls it like birth pangs, a woman's um, contractions when she's having a baby are 30 minutes apart. And they're 15 minutes apart. Then they're five minutes apart. And then there's the dilation. And then there's a baby. That's the end times. It's, it's bad. It's rumbling. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. Bam. Here's the end. And so as the book of Revelation comes to a close from chapter 6 through the end of chapter 18, Revelation 19 is the second coming of Christ. Here we have it here. If you want, a re- if you want an overview of Revelation, just read it in this paragraph. It's right here. Verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. They will see. Imagine looking up at that. Imagine looking up and seeing Jesus, who calls himself the Son of Man. In fact, this is a quote from Daniel chapter, chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel is given this vision of four kingdoms, Babylon, The Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and the fifth kingdom is a kingdom that's cut out of a rock without hands. It rolls on the ground. It becomes a great mountain. It rolls over the previous kingdoms and sets up his kingdom forever. We know that to be Jesus. This is that kingdom. That is the second coming of Christ. And what does he do when he gets back? He sets up his kingdom on earth for 1,000 years according to Revelation chapter 20. 
So tribulation in Revelation from chapter 6 through 18, the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19, in chapter 20, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, and then chapters 21 and 22, eternal heaven. There it is, laid out in sequential order. I'm amazed at some of the amillennialists I'll read, and they'll go, Revelation is just a hodgepodge of things put here and put there, and it all deals with AD 70. No, it doesn't. Don't buy that. Don't buy that. That's way too easy. I think it's lazy, too. Don't be lazy. You can be a Christian, but not a very informed Christian, if you believe that. And again, I don't mean to be ugly. My job is to tell you. Here's what it says. I want you to know these things. This is good stuff. Amen? See the Son of Man coming in a cloud. How will they see him? With power and great glory. How did Jesus come the first time? Is there power and great glory being put in a a trough, a feeding trough? Being wrapped in swaddling clothes. Is there power and great glory in that? Is there power and great glory in a carpenter from Nazareth who comes into town on a donkey? No. No. Jesus came the first time in humility. As a man... God become man to live our life, and he did. When he returns, he comes in great power and glory, and he's not coming for salvation. He came for salvation the first time. He's coming for judgment, isn't he? If you are not a believer in Christ, if you have not turned your life over to Christ, let me lovingly warn you, Jesus is coming back, and he's not coming back to save you. To save you, you have that opportunity right here, right now. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, what he said, and you shall be saved. And when he comes back, that's what we're saved from, his wrath. Essentially, we are saved from him, aren't we? Power and great glory, verse 28. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Um, that would be those who are living at that time. Jesus has given us, here's what's happening. He told the disciples what would happen to them. He speaks of, of your, he uses that word your in verse 28. I believe he's using what we would call a, a prophetic you in this case. If you read the Old Testament, um, specific passages that I, I can recall are Isaiah 33, verses 17 and following, and one like perhaps Zechariah 9, 9 where the prophet is talking to the Jews of that day, calling them you, but those things happen much later. So it's a prophetic you talking to a group of people that is fulfilled in another group of people. And I think he's telling the same thing here. You, meaning the the disciples, yes, in a near fulfillment, but in a far fulfillment, when you see these things begin to take place, what things begin to take place? We have been told in the Bible that there is seven years left of God's prophetic actions on his prophetic counter. We know when the seven years begins because there's a peace treaty that's going to be made in Israel with a world ruler, a ruler that is truly one that is recognized by the world as he's the king of the world. He's the man. Now, he's not going to be, he's not going to call himself antichrist. He's not going to call himself, yeah, I'm I'm Mr. Man of Lawlessness. That's what the Bible calls him or the beast. That's what the Bible calls him. He's going to be, you know, we all know his name's Nikolai Carpathia. <laughs> Those of you who read Left Behind, you know what I'm talking about. He's going to be from Romania, right? No. 
We don't know what his name is. Some have surmised it might be a woman, but it does call him a he throughout the Bible. He is going to be someone who is very powerful, that people love, and there's going to be a peace treaty in Israel, and who doesn't want peace in the Middle East? That's when it begins. You see, the first 69 of the 70 sevens of Daniel were completed at the killing of Christ. We know that from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 26. The cutting off of Christ, the cutting off of the anointed one, it says, that is the end of the 69th week. We know that there's, when A.D. 70 was gone and these prophecies hadn't been fulfilled, well, there's no temple. But there has to be a temple in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, because there's an end to sacrifice. And the only way you can have sacrifice in Israel is if you have what, class? A temple. The Jews today are trying and want desperately to rebuild their temple. They've retaken their city, their country. They have certain parameters. They're still not believers, and yet God has given them what they, what they want, and now they're going to rebuild that temple. And some world leader's going to let them do it. Seven years, and now they're going to be able to rebuild that temple. In the middle of that week, which is seven years, that seven-year week, that man called the man of lawlessness, the beast, the Antichrist, man of sin is going to put an end to their sacrifice and he's going to put an image of himself in that temple that Matthew chapter 24 verse 15 quoting from Daniel says is the abomination of desolation the abomination is something highly offensive desolation is something destroyed that offensive thing will absolutely destroy he will make the Jews cease to worship God and worship his image and it will be fueled by a man Revelation 13 calls the false prophet, the beast out of the earth. He will call all worship, make everyone worship the beast, or you will die. You'll worship the beast by having a mark, either on your, your forehead or on your right wrist. You'll scan it probably, a chip of some sort. And if you won't do that, then you won't eat. You can't eat because you can't buy or sell. So if you want to be a part of that regime. If you just want to eat and live, you have to take the mark of the beast. The false prophet will ensure it or you will die. And so there is a great tribulation at the middle of that time. The tribulation begins at the beginning, but in the middle it becomes really bad. The great tribulation. And Jesus is saying, when you see these things begin to take place, which means that you have to have a peace treaty in Israel, if you're here and you see that, you've missed the rapture, at least from my standpoint, because I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. There are other good and godly people who think that it happens in the middle of the tribulation, and others still that believe it happens at the end. I disagree, but I disagree respectfully. I think it happens at the beginning. So when these things begin to take place, Jesus says, lift up your heads, which is to say, pay attention, folks, your redemption is drawing near. You know if you're around and you see the abomination of desolation, you see the rebuilt Jerusalem temple with an image of some guy in it, you know that Jesus will return in three and a half years. You know it because Jesus is spelling it out. You know that, what does he say? Your redemption is drawing near. We say, well, wait a minute, I thought I already was redeemed when I came to know Christ. You were, but just the promise of it. It's completed when Jesus returns, isn't it? Does God lie? No. So if he promised it, it's signed, sealed, and delivered. But it's completed when he returns. So he tells him a parable in verse 29. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as you put forth 
Notice it's not just fig tree, it's all trees. And what are we, we're January 28th today. It's my good buddy Paul's birthday. Happy birthday, Paul. Um, around, what, mid-February, start seeing, at least where I live, the red bud leaf trees. They start, start to bloom. And what do you know? What do you think? You go, ah, spring is coming. Spring and summer. And we can't wait for 112 degree heat again. Yes. But we know it's coming. This is nothing fantastically deep here. It's not even a parable. It's just a little illustration. Guys, just like you know, when you see green on the trees, you know that spring, summer's around the corner. As soon as they put forth their leaves, you see it, and you know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize the kingdom of God is near. Again, I believe it's that prophetic you talking to a a particular group of people, but meaning a future people, just like the Old Testament prophets did, just like Jesus does elsewhere. So you also, and it's interesting that when a prophet in the Old Testament or Jesus in the New Testament speaks to a generation in Israel, he's talking about all Israel of every generation. You're thinking the people that nailed Jesus to the cross are held responsible today, even in the Holocaust, Jewish unbelievers today, they are the same unbelievers as yesteryear. One of the reasons that when we pray, I, I love in the Bible, especially Daniel, who we see no sin in Daniel, although we know he was a sinner. Daniel prays, having been faithful to God, he prays and asks God to forgive our transgressions as a nation. I think that should be our prayers as well. Lord, we as a people, we, I'm not talking about Americans. You could pray as Americans, sure, but praying as a church, Lord, we as a church have not represented you. We like to, I know I have in the past, kind of pigeonhole ourselves, we're this group, we're better than everybody else, and, and shame on me for that. It's a terrible attitude. It's a wrong attitude. There are other Christians everywhere. You don't have to come to this church to be a Christian. I mean, I've never thought that or said that, but we can tend to think that. We're the ones. We got it. The church, including ourselves, we, we sin. We fall short of the glory of God. Pray not just for your forgiveness, but for our forgiveness. The you is for all Jews, for all generations even. When you see, I'm in verse 31, when you see, you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Jesus says in in Matthew and Mark, he doesn't say the kingdom of God, but speaks of himself. The king is near. There's no difference between the kingdom of God and the king, is there? The king is associated with kingdom. The kingdom is associated with king. Recognize he is near. When these things begin to take place inside that seven-year tribulation, you know he's seven years away. Then he says something that has baffled us for years. Verse 32, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation. Looks like Jesus is talking to to the 12 disciples. And they're all dead. As that entire generation and all these things, Jesus was either way off or that's not what he meant. I'm going with that's not what he meant. Because I know Jesus doesn't make mistakes. The generation, word for generation is genea. It can mean just a people, um, um, an era, an age. So imagine for a minute that Jesus has been describing this. You know, when you take a class on eschatology, like what we're doing here, even with Jesus, he may have, hey, guys, gather around. Let me, let me, let me draw out a good line here. You know, everyone, people like me, uh, called dispensationalists, you may or may not know what that means, we love to draw lines. 
Love to draw timelines. Here we go. All right, timeline. Here we go. All right, boom, right here is the cross of Christ. And, and then this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to We like to measure it out. It's a good idea. People like that, don't you? It's good. One of my amillennial brothers in Christ said, yeah, all you guys ever do is make timelines. What's wrong with the timeline? I mean, that, that, what's wrong with the timeline? Nothing. They just don't like that we do it. So maybe Jesus was in the dirt going, okay, here's what's going to happen here. Boom, 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 boom. Here's your generation right here. Maybe Jesus was saying, and this generation right here. Maybe he's pointing to something he's just put in the dirt. This generation right here that I'm talking about will not pass away until all these come to pass. That's the generation he's talking about, the future generation. He can't be talking about the generation of AD 70 because Jesus didn't come back. If he'd have said, hey, when you see these things begin to happen, watch out, your redemption is near. No, it wasn't. It hasn't come yet. But when these things happen within inside that tribulation, seven-year tribulation, and after the abomination of desolation is set up in Matthew and Mark's gospel, which he's tacked at the same context of Luke in mind, those two gospel writers, when you see it happen, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass. In other words, the generation of the future that will see this, they will not pass away. God is saying, I am not going to obliterate people until all these things come to pass. All these things. There's a lot of things there, isn't there? Some of you may be hearing this for the first time, and you're going, you lost me 25 minutes ago. In fact, you didn't even know I was going to speak for 20 minutes. So I lost you 25 minutes ago, and I still got 15 minutes. This generation, truly, I said, which is Jesus saying, this is no joke. This is serious. This is solemn. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I want you to note that when you pick up your Bible and you, be, and you read it another day in the life of your, of your existence, maybe trying to get through it in a year, this word, because it's the word of God and he doesn't lie, he doesn't say anything haphazardly, is always pertinent. It never dies. This world that we live on, this beautiful earth, it's beautiful when you take a bird's eye view of it, you go up in the sky, look down on it, See, pictures, it's beautiful, isn't it? But it's cursed, and it will be destroyed. We see it come to its end in the book of Revelation. God has to renew it when Jesus returns so that he reigns upon it for a thousand years on a renewed earth with a reversed curse. But as big and beautiful as it is, it's going to be destroyed. And what's left when it's destroyed? The word of God, which never dies. It never goes away. It's never not pertinent. People may not like it. They may say it's antiquated, and it is antiquated. It's old. But because God is not old, can't age when you're eternal. You know, God's not an old guy in the sky going, man, this is, this is taking too long. I've been up here for so long. He's not Santa Claus. He is eternal. That will blow your mind if you try to think about it. So don't. So what's the application? It's right there in verse 34. Be on guard. Why, Jesus? Why should I be on guard? So that, there it is, so that. Every time you see so that in your Bible, underline, circle it, because it's a purpose clause. Be on guard. And the tense of the verb is always be on guard. Continually be on guard. Why? So that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness. By the way, those words mean the same thing. Dissipation is drunkenness. Drunk with, with desire, drunk with, with real 
alcohol there and the word drunkenness, that you're weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. Be on guard. See, if you're weighted down by what's going on in the world, if you're weighted down with the election, please, all of you, my friends, don't let yourselves get taken by this election. Do not let the ridiculousness of those candidates steal your joy for one moment. God is in control. Always. You may prefer one over the other, but they're, they're all boneheads on their best day. God is our king. Please. I, I, I'm pleading with you because I'm pleading with me. Don't let this silliness get under your skin. Be on guard. Don't let yourself be taken down by what's going on out there. Don't be drunk. Be on guard. Always be on guard that the worries of life and that day don't come upon you suddenly like a trap. Worries take us. We worry about this. We worry about our children. If you're a young mother or father, you worry about your little kids. I promise you when they're in their 20s and 30s, you worry about them still. Maybe more. Because now what you taught them is on display. You never stop worrying, but we're not supposed to worry. They don't belong to us. They never did. We worry about what will happen in government. We worry what will happen uh, shaking hands. I might get the flu. I might get COVID and die. If you die, I promise you no one's dying before God says it's time to die. No one. It's all in God's hands. No sense in worrying about it. No sense in letting that take us down. God is in control. Always. Be on guard always, not just today. And then he says, verse 35, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth, but keep on the alert at all times. So it's be on guard always, keep on the alert at all times. How do we do that? I don't know. I thought about it all week, and I thought, you know, if if it's Sunday and it's time to worship with your brothers and sisters, don't be caught not there. Don't be caught out on the lake, because that's what you do every week. That's okay to miss from time to time. You're not ready because Jesus came back and you're out playing. You're not ready because you're, you're in bed depressed over something silly or something monumental. You're, you're ready. You're on guard. You're on the alert. On Monday morning, maybe you did come to church, but Monday morning you lose the alert because Sunday is your day of worship. On Monday, it's time to make money. Time to go back to business and business is business. Going to go back to cheating people. Going to go back to, to keeping the truth from people. Or maybe on Friday night, you're going to let your hair down, figuratively speaking. Or Saturday night, we're going to have a little party. We're going, to have a, we're going to let loose. Be on the alert. Watch out. When Jesus comes, what will he find you doing? There's a, a line in uh, uh, Narnia Chronicles where uh, Peter uh, just slays this, this wolf, this monstrous wolf. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And, and his sword is filled with blood and, and, and this monstrous wolf hair. And as he turns, there's Aslan, who is depiction of Christ. And what does he tell Peter? Wipe your sword off, Peter. And then he begins to talk to him. And at the end of it, he says, and don't forget to wipe your sword, Peter. Which is way of saying, be ready. You just want a victory, clean it off and get ready for the next. Be ready, my friends. We say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm in. Yeah, if you are, you will show that you're a Christian by always being ready. Jesus could come at any moment. Now, here's, where the, here's the rub. You might say, well, wait a minute. You just said that Jesus won't come back until seven years after a peace treaty signed in Israel, and you just said there is no peace treaty that's been signed yet. 
So how can we be worried about Jesus coming back anytime? I'm glad you asked. The answer is called the rapture of the church. The rapture could happen at any moment. That's why I don't believe it's mid-tribulation. That's why I don't believe it's post-tribulation. I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture because of one thing. There's many other things, but the best one is imminence. The imminent return of Christ means that this is applicational for those living in the tribulation. Watch out, it's around the corner. And for those living pre-tribulation, you and me. If we're on our guard and we're ready, Jesus could come at any moment. If we only believe that this has to do with the end times, then I could tell you guys that seven-year peace treaty hasn't been signed. Go home, live your life, do whatever you want. I know for a fact Jesus isn't coming for at least seven more years. Eat, drink, be merry. I could say that. How would that preach? Heretically. Folks, the rapture of the church could happen at any moment. That's the next prophetic event on the calendar, and there are no signs that precede it. None. After the rapture of the church, the taking up of all who actually believe in Jesus, that seven-year peace treaty follows close behind. We don't know how close behind. The church has been removed because God doesn't have any wrath to pour out on the church. What's that last seven years for? Let me ask you the first one. What were the first 69 sevens for? Who? Then why would it be for anyone else that last seven for Israel than for Israel? God removes the church because the the church is not destined for his wrath. The last seven years are part of the initial 69 because it totals 70. Yes, it begins maybe not so bad, but that's only because we might read it and say, ah, it doesn't look like it's any big deal at the beginning. Oh, I don't want to be here to see it. It's bad right now, and we're not in the tribulation. So if we're to live as if Jesus could come back any moment, if you're mid-tribulationer, then you say, well, he's not coming today. I know he's not coming until there's something set up in the temple, and there ain't no temple, so I'm good today. Eat, drink, and be merry. That doesn't preach, so it ain't right. Don't believe it. Jesus will come and take his church away, lift us out, pour out his wrath on his people who have rejected him century after century after having crucified him. We are rescued, and when he returns, we return with him. Revelation 19, and there's a a, a marriage or a wedding feast. How about that? The feast is like nothing you've ever had. And the greatest thing you ever had, it's that on steroids. The feast that we get to eat with Jesus at his return if we are in Christ. The raptured church returns with Jesus. Jesus returns to the earth, and what does he find? There are believers when he returns. He separates them as sheep and the unbelievers as goats. This comes from Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is an addendum. It adds to what Luke does not give. Jesus separates them and says, that's why I don't believe in a post-tribulation rapture. If Jesus raptured the church at the end of the tribulation, then when he comes back, there's no sheep to judge and no one to go into the millennium to populate the millennium. But he judges. And those sheep are people that have never died. Contrary to the church who's been raptured, glorified bodies returned to the earth, we are reigning with Christ The tribulation saints will populate the millennium over 1,000 years at the end of the 1,000 years. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5 says there will be a rebellion of all things against who? Against Jesus himself. And Jesus snuffs that out, 
and takes us into the eternal kingdom, Revelation 21 and 22. Folks, there really is no... (laughs) I don't think there should be any pause in which one we want, which one we prefer, which one we desire. The way has been paved for eternal rewards in spite of us being sinners. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Believe in Him and you will be saved. Trust Him. Beware. Be on the alert. Constantly be on the alert because that's what we want. That's why we pray. As the model prayer says, pray what? Thy kingdom come. Which is saying, God, send your kingdom. I want to be in it. How many of you have said that this week? Life got tough, got difficult. Lord, take me home. Nothing wrong with that. You long for something better. Your life is great, but you still say, it's not good enough. Lord, take me home. Good. It means you love what's awaiting far more than you love this, no matter how good this is. Folks, the end times are given to us to encourage us and perhaps even to frighten those who know they're not in Christ. If you are not in Christ, I hope you're scared out of your gourd. I want you to be. You should be. If you're not scared, shame on you. You missed it. You should be frightened to the core because if you don't receive Jesus, your life will be taken from you. And what's left of you, that soul of yours, it will live forever. That's the good news. You will live forever. The bad news is that you will live in eternal destruction away from the Lord God Almighty. You might say, well, uh, I'll just enjoy my time. You don't even know that you can see in hell, hear in hell, eat in hell, taste in hell, not have an eternal flu bug in hell. Folks, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you should be saved. It's that simple. Avoid that. Believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, for those who are here today who do not know you, maybe through defiance, maybe through ignorance, maybe through defiance, only you can open their minds. I pray you use the preaching of your word to bring about opening their minds to receive Christ. For those of us who do know you, encourage us with what we've heard, with what your word says, your eternal word your eternal promises. May we look to you vertically, not horizontally. May we find our great encouragement in you even if life pulls the carpet out from underneath us. You are our hope. Not our retirement, not our kids, not our spouse, not even our health. You are our hope. Remind us of that, Lord. May we give honor and glory to you for being the rock that we stand upon, who will never leave us nor forsake us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May God bless you as you go and be alert. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 